The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm actually filling in for Beth Heaton, who is the regular host, and sh- but she'll be back next week. Um, so before I get started on this show, I just wanted to mention that I noticed that my co-host, uh, especially Ian, Ian often comments about the weather. Um, so I just thought I'd throw in some of my own comments, given that it is 91 degrees here. Um, so I used to be jealous of Ian because he lived in California where it's sunny, uh, but now I'm jealous of him because he lives in Portland where it usually doesn't go above 80 degrees and it rains all the time. And I would at this point take that over the 90 degree weather that I, that we're having here. So, so that's my little shout out to you and your weather commentary, Ian. All right. Now on to today, our second segment will be our schools out session. So grab your pens, students, and be ready to take notes as you will be getting some homework. Uh, my guests, members of the Schools Out team here at College Coach, will be Zaragoza Guerra, former admissions officer at MIT Caltech and the Boston Conservatory, as well as Lori Peltier, former senior financial aid officer at Beckley and Anna Maria Colleges. We'll be discussing your next steps in the application process. The third segment, I'll be talking with Kathy Ruby, college finance consultant and former financial aid officer at St. Olaf and Shippensburg University of Pennsylvania. But first, our, for our first segment, are you a college student who's trying to save money on your travel costs flying to college and back? Danielle Dugan from Student Universe is here again. You might remember she was here with us a couple months ago. And she's here to enlighten us on the best ways for students to save money while traveling back and forth to college. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you very much for having me back. Oh, absolutely. So, Danielle, um, while a lot of college students stay close to home, many also go far away. I mean, personally, I, just speaking for myself, I grew up in Los Angeles and went north to Portland, Oregon, which was a 17-hour drive, so, you know, airplanes mm-hmm. were helpful. Um, so information about the cheapest times to book flights really would have been helpful for me as well. Um, so I guess we could just start with the nitty-gritty. Like, uh, what do you have to tell us? What are the busiest and hardest to book flights? flight routes and dates. Yeah, so really we see that there's sort of four main periods during the school year when students are booking travel to and from campus. The first is in August, um, which is the obvious time to go back to school or to campus for the first time for freshman students. Um, The next is actually for winter break in December. Um, You know, while some students may choose to stay on campus, uh, many students with three to four weeks off at that time will choose to go home for winter break. Uh, Next up is spring break, and that's when we see a lot of students 
some going home, but many more are traveling to new destinations. And then lastly, um, home at the end of the, at the end of the school year, um, in the May, June timeframe. So those are sort of the four main, uh, main times for travel and, and taking them, uh, with the one that's coming up most, most urgently is August. So when we looked at, um, where are people flying around the U.S. for school? Um, we thought this just might be a, an interesting an interesting point to start off with. Um, our most popular routes for August back to school travel are students traveling back and forth from New York to LA and vice versa, LA to New York, then Chicago to New York, then New York to San Francisco and vice versa, San Francisco to New York, and then we have Boston to Washington DC and Boston to Los Angeles. So those are the most popular routes where students are sort of going to school across the country and, and where they're flying to. Now, in terms of when they're booking and when you should actually book to get the best prices for this type of travel, um, we often see that students are actually booking their travel for back to school, probably a lot closer to their departure date than you might imagine. Um, generally, it's 7 to 13 days in advance of travel. Um, students are actually booking their tickets back to campus. So um, August 10th actually becomes the peak booking week on our site for back to school trips. Um, but when you actually look at the cheapest time or, or when, you, when you should actually be booking to save, um, to save a lot of money, that's actually between... July 28th and August 3rd. So basically now. <laughs> so um, if you're a college student and you're listening and, and you're thinking about, um, you know, when should I be booking my ticket to get to campus? Um, now <laughs> would really be a great time to to do that and to start looking and to start looking into um, your options. And you know, we're a provider that does um, student-specific negotiated tickets. Um, so you can definitely sign up there with your school email. But no matter where you book, uh, now is probably the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'll just mention again that Danielle works at Student Universe, so that's the website you'll be looking for. Um, so should students be booking round trip or one way? Uh, what, what, how do they get the, both de- the best deals? Or maybe you can start out just by telling us how most students do it. Yeah, so I think a lot of students um, have this mentality um, because of the way that travel patterns generally run is that, you know, you're going to get a better deal if you actually book a round trip ticket. Um, and, and generally that is the case on a lot of sites, but because our um, content is negotiated specifically for students, and we know that students often travel without set plans. You know, they may go abroad or go to campus. They're not quite sure when their finals are, so they really don't want to book a round-trip ticket to campus. They want to book a one-way in August and then book a one-way back in May or June. So a lot of students will actually start off searching for a round-trip ticket. We see about 77% of students that come to our site they are searching for that round-trip ticket for back-to-school. But when it actually comes to the bookings themselves, we see that more than half, 56% of students, actually do end up booking that one-way ticket. And I think the reason is, you know, if, if, if the price is um, competitive for one-way fares and you're, you're actually spending less than you would breaking down a round-trip ticket into two parts, you know, why wouldn't you allow yourself that flexibility of booking that one-way ticket, um, given that you may not know your exact return date? Mm-hmm. Or even what you'll be doing. I mean, one time a friend of mine who had to fly from Chicago to Portland ended up deciding to fly to L.A. We spent mm-hmm. a week together, and then we drove up to Portland together. So, you know, that exactly. extra flexibility and, and- was nice for her. 
Exactly. And, and, you know, some students may also get to campus and then they find an internship close by their school and they end up deciding, you know, hey, I'm just going to stay here for the summer. So, um, you know, that, that flexibility is great. In terms of um, when students are actually flying to school, um, we see that August 17th is the week, that, that's prime time. That's the week most students are actually flying to campus. Um, so what we found actually looking at our data is that that's the peak departure week. But the later you can go in August, the price keeps dipping down. So if you have the flexibility not to go back to campus until August 26th or August 31st, the later you can possibly travel in August, the cheaper it's, it's generally going to be for you. Mm-hmm. And what what about the days of the week? Are there are there differences between the days of the week in terms of the best times to travel? There certainly are. Um, we see that mo- the most popular travel day of the week is actually Friday, um, and that's closely followed behind by Thursday and Saturday. Um, overall, about twenty percent of students choose to travel to campus on the weekends. Um, one nice thing is if you're a student and you have the flexibility to travel you know, whatever day of the week you'd like in, in a particular week. Um, we actually have something on our site called Flexible Search. So you can say, you know, these are the dates I'm looking at a one-way flight, but I have the flexibility to go, you know, three, five, seven days before or after that. And it will actually show you in, in, in a bar chart form, you know, the, this is how much you could save by going a day later. So flexibility is also a key component of getting a great deal. Mm-hmm. All right. And so we know that it's cheapest that really students who are planning to go to college in the fall um, should really be booking their tickets now, between now yeah. and uh, the beginning of August. But mm-hmm. what about for some of the other? Um, what about for some of the other travel periods? Yeah. So the next ones that are going to be on a student's mind once they start co- uh, college is probably making the decision: Will I or will I not go for winter break? You know, for I think it largely depends for a lot of students on how long is their break. Um, for most students, this tends to be a three to four week period, so they usually. Uh, do end up going, um, you know, going home unless, you know, we know that there's a lot of international students, for example, that this may be their first time coming to the U.S. or a student on the East Coast going to the West Coast for the first time or vice versa. And those students may say, oh, you know, three weeks doesn't seem like enough time to go cross country. Maybe I'll just plan myself a couple of quick trips around this coast and, and kind of check out some areas I haven't seen. But for students that actually do want to go home, um, in addition to the routes we already sort of talked about for August, we also see a lot of students for the, the, the December break traveling from New York to Orlando. And we, we surmise that that may be students that are trying to go south for some sunnier weather, um, maybe spend some time down in Florida. We also see a lot of students going from Chicago to L.A. and also Chicago to San Francisco. So those are some of the routes that we're seeing booked with the greatest volume. Um, in terms of when students are traveling and, and when they really should be booking this to save the most money, um, students traveling home for winter break tend to do so the week of December 21st, the week of Christmas, which makes a lot of sense. For, um, for winter break, uh, the week of December 21st, which is the week of Christmas Day, that is, that is our peak departure week for when students are traveling home. Um, in this case, if you can actually go earlier, so you'll remember in August, you want to try to go as late a month as possible to save money. But for the case of December for winter break, you actually want to try to go as early in the month as possible. We actually saw that for students traveling the week of December 7th, they were able to save about $75 on their ticket, which in a lot of cases would be about a third of the cost of the actual ticket itself. Um, so that, that's when students are traveling and, and when they can go to save money. Um, 
And we see a lot of students booking their December break trips a lot earlier, actually, more like 30 to 60 days in advance, whereas for August travel, we only saw them leaving a week or two's time. Okay. So, um, and, and the split between students booking one-way and round-trip tickets for winter break was a lot more uh, 50-50 than it actually was for back-to-school. Okay. All right. Anything else about um, those particular travel periods, the to and from school um, sort of travel periods? The only other things I would add is um, the week of October 12th actually turns out to be the cheapest time to book uh, travel home for winter break. We, we sort of see um, the prices starting on a downward traje- trajectory from late August and then going to the lowest point the week of October 12th. So again, if you have flexibility and you can book it that week, we see that that's when you're going to get the best deal. We also see the majority of students traveling home for winter break on Wednesday. Um, again, Wednesday's ten- midweek flights can tend to be cheaper. And again, just use flexible search if you, if you do have the flexibility and, and we'll be able to help you find um, when you could actually save quite a bit of money, m- maybe just by tra- traveling a day or two different. Mm-hmm. And hey, if you're able to schedule your finals earlier, that'll obviously help you, especially yes, for the December time. Yeah, Get out of there as soon as possible in December, yes. you're going to save the most money. Yes, absolutely. All right, so we only have about two minutes left, but sure. what about what about spring break? I mean, I, I just, I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who told me about driving from the University of Connecticut all the way down to Fort Lauderdale in oh, wow. a two-person pickup truck, and the third person had to ride in the back, which, of course, oh. now as an adult, I think that's so dangerous. And he, and he <laughs> laughed and told me he would never let his daughter, who's now college age, do that. So, you know, again, cheap tickets for spring break could be a good idea. Let's try and like, <laughs> let's try and help these uh, students make safer choices. So any ideas yes. about that? Absolutely. Well, spring break, um, New York has actually been our top spring break destination for six years running. Um, and London has been a top destination for spring break as well. But we've seen a lot of shifting patterns in that students are um, about 64% of our bookings for spring break are actually international. We're seeing 60% of U.S. Um, travelers actually that are booking international trips are actually um, going abroad. And we think that the reason for this is because a lot of students want to have an experience for spring break that they can put on their resume and say, hey, you know, I went over to Europe and I did X, Y, and Z. Um, they're thinking about their future and things that are going to look good on a resume. Um, people aren't really just sitting on the beach for spring break like they used to. Only 40% of our domestic spring breakers last year actually went to a beach location. So the, the tides are really shifting. If you're looking for the cheapest tickets last year as an indicator, you should be looking at going to Myrtle Beach, Miami, Las Vegas, Milan, Madrid, or Frankfurt. Those were the cheapest locations last year. Wow. So Milan, Frankfurt, and what was the other European destination? Um, Milan, Frankfurt, and Madrid were the cheapest international Madrid. destinations. If you do want to have that international experience for spring break, and for a lot of students, they might have a friend that studied abroad. They themselves might not have studied abroad, and we hear a lot of stories about people booking flights for us to go join a friend who's abroad for the semester. So that, that's a very common um, spring break um, destination for students that didn't go abroad themselves. Wow. So that's pretty exciting. I personally would pick a trip to Madrid over a trip to Fort Lauderdale. So, yeah. (laughs) All right. Listen, Danielle, that's wonderful. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, We're going to take, you're welcome. And we're going to take a short break. But when we get back, we'll have our schools out hour with, sorry, it's not a full hour, but we'll have our schools out segment with Zara Gozaguerra, an educational consultant, and Lori Peltier. 
finance, finance consultant. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inter-Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, now is time for our Schools Out discussion with Zaragoza Guerra on your admissions application and Lori Peltier, sorry, Peltier, <laughs> sorry, I always mispronounce Lori's last name, um, on applying for f- financial assistance to go to college. Hi, Zaragoza and Lori. Hi, Ty. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Doing very good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, excellent. So what I want to do for this Schools Out segment is I want to kind of harken back to what we talked about last week. Um, last week, Ian Fisher, who was the host last week, and Julia Jones, our colleague, spent time discussing the activity list. And while they had a pretty comprehensive discussion, extracurriculars are really quite important to selective admissions. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to gear this question towards you, goes in particular. Um, what do you think you might add to their discussion? I mean, they went into some good details, but for example, what do you think you might advise students to do if they can't fit everything on their activity list? That's a great question because oftentimes I might have a student who I'm working with who is using any one of the application platforms, whether it's the Common App platform or whether it's the UC platform or any other you know, application platform, and sometimes you just can't fit 
all of the information that you've got, all of your accomplishments, um, everything that you want to tell the university about yourself onto their particular format. And so it poses a dilemma for students as to how they're going to get all of that information across to a college or university. So what I generally encourage students to do is, hey, you know, take a look at the format that you've been given. Try to work with it as much as possible. So I know like last week uh, we were talking about the activities grid and, and uh, we had uh, um, an opportunity for students to take a look at what uh, that kind of looks like, you know, in terms of uh, the link that we sent out. Uh, so I encourage students, hey, use that as much as possible. Try to document as much of your activities as you can uh, on there. And sometimes you're going to have to go a little bit over. So it only gives you room for 10 activities. It only gives you room for five honors and awards. And most students, that's going to be okay. But there are going to be other students who are going to be having trouble trying to fit that in. So I generally encourage them, let's just use the format that we've been given, you know, Try to get all the information that we can on there. If you go over, if you've got 15 activities rather than just um, 10, um, you know, go ahead and still document them. Put them all down. Then we try to figure out which ones we want to put first, which ones we want an admissions officer to see first. And then there are ways that you can sneakily <laughs> add in all of those extras on an application platform. You know, oftentimes, you know, with a common app, for instance, they have an additional info section, and I oftentimes have my students uh, submit some of those extra applications, um, activities, or extra awards in that section, probably in the same format, very similar to the same format that the Common App is going to be requesting that a student submit their extracurricular activities and, and document it in that way, uh, just so that an admission officer can quickly glean the information that they need right away. Right. And so when you say in a way similar, I think what you're talking about is sort of them, you know, making sure to talk about it in terms of hours per week and weeks per year, like the common application activity exactly. list asks. Yeah, exactly. So if and, and, you know, giving a description of that activity and try to keep it in that same format. If they're only asking for 150 characters, I know that might not necessarily sound like a lot. But you can put a lot of information there if you're very <laughs> creative uh, and, and know where to put other information and try not to be repetitive. You can get a lot of information in there. But let's, let's kind of be, I mean, I'm all, I always tell students to be careful about this because sometimes students, yeah, they've got more than 10 activities, but some of them they only did in ninth and 10th grade. Some of them they only mm -hmm. did, you know, you know, was like Relay for Life that they only did, you know, twice. I mean, I don't think, like, I usually tell students to just leave those off. Like, what do you think about that? I agree. And that's why I think it's very important that a student starts ranking those activities right away and seeing what is most important to them. Um, if, if the student really doesn't feel that, hey, they learned um, so much from the, that particular activity or they got a lot out of that activity or that participation really doesn't demonstrate you know, their particular efforts and, and what they were, what, what they are able to do in other activities that it might not necessarily be worth putting down. So it's important to definitely rank those activities head on and, and right away um, before you do this. And that way you might discover, hey, if I've got 12 activities and those last two activities are eh, maybe not so representative of 
my work ethic may not necessarily so representative of the contributions I've been able to make to school or community life, then maybe you don't necessarily need to put them down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that being said, if you're a student without many activities, you know, kind of feel free to put them down. Although um, any student who has at least eight activities or like, let's even say five activities, I tell them don't bother if it was just a ninth grade activity, unless there's kind of a clear progression from that activity to some something else. Like, um, like, you know, I've worked with a number of students who are at high schools where you can't work on the yearbook until you're in 10th grade or 11th grade. So they work on the paper or something else first, and then they work on the yearbook. And so obviously, of course, I'll have them list both of those. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had plenty of students, let's say for music, they're, you know, starting within a particular orchestra in ninth grade. And then they're moving on to, you know, another orchestra where, you know, they've, they're part of a lot of different music groups. And if they don't put in that ninth grade orchestra, someone's going to think, oh, they just started music in 10th grade. And you want to make sure, okay, am I putting this on here uh, just for the sake of putting it on here, or am I putting it on here to let them know, hey, there's a progression here. I've always been involved in music. And, and, you know, there has to be a good reason why you're putting it down there. Right. That being said, you don't need to make sure everybody knows you've been playing since you were five. (laughs) I just see that all the time with musicians. (laughs) We're really interested in high school. (laughs) Exactly. These are high school activities. So so if you won the National Spelling Bee (laughs) in second grade, yay, that's wonderful. (laughs) But you probably don't need to put it down. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You might be able to casually mention it somewhere else. But no, they're really looking for ninth to 12th grade activities here. Mm-hmm. Now, there are going to be some students who uh, might come across an application platform uh, that doesn't allow them to tell an admissions officer that much about what they've been able to participate in. So, you know, there are going to be some application platforms that just give you the opportunity to just list your activities. And you want the school to know, hey, you know, this is what I've been able to do and accomplish within that club or activity. Um, That name of that activity and my role as president really doesn't encompass (laughs) all the things that I was able to do. And a school might give a student an opportunity to submit a resume in addition to that list. Then it might be appropriate to perhaps pull together a resume. Mm-hmm. In it, you know, in addition to that list, not every, you know, I, I, I'm, what I like about the common application and, you know, that's the application platform that a lot of students use is that it does give you an opportunity to talk about what you were able to accomplish within that activity. And I find you probably don't necessarily even need to submit a resume in addition to that because you can put a lot in there. Um, and but there are going to be some application platforms that don't allow you to tell all that much, and they give you an opportunity to submit a resume. And that might be a good opportunity for that student who feels, hey, a list just doesn't cut it in terms of describing you know, my contributions. Mm-hmm. So that might be something that a student would want to consider. Right. Or even on the Common App, if it's something a little more complex. I mean, I had a student who was really quite brilliant. I mean, this was a pretty exceptional young man. And um, he had worked for the PR arm of the Democratic National Committee. And he was actually writing the press releases himself. So, I mean, he was kind of able to fit it in, but he wanted to make sure that they knew, like he had some specific accomplishments, um, you know, sort sure. of beyond that. And um, 
And then like I had another student who had an internship with Motley Fool and again, wasn't just kind of running around making people coffee, but like actually managed to contribute to some real work projects that were pretty interesting. And for him, I thought we, you know, we want for both those students, I wanted them to give a little bit more detail about what they had done. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a resume could be the, the perfect opportunity to do that. Especially yeah. if the school is going to allow you to do that. Not every school wants resumes. There are going to be others that give you the opportunity to do that. And if you're one of those students who feels that a resume wouldn't just be repeating what you put on that activities list, then go for it because it could really give an admissions officer insight into what you were actually able to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always but, think... But the Oh, go ahead. But the resume might look a little bit different than, you know, any kind of resume that uh, you would be submitting to an employer and so forth. And so you're going to want to limit it to those things that an admissions officer is going to want to see. So when you're crafting that resume, I generally recommend to students, hey, you know, think about three sections, you know, of your resume. Maybe your extracurricular activities, you know, those things that you're doing, you know, whether it's music, whether it's theater, whether it's athletics and so forth. Uh, perhaps uh, another section would be your work and volunteer experiences. Uh, what were your roles within that particular job? And then another section on honors and awards. And that's not all too different than how the Common App or any other application platform is going to divvy up uh, those activity lists. Mm-hmm. So and there's I no s- need to necessarily repeat information like, hey, you know, these are the classes that I took and, and so forth because that's all going to be spoken about in one's transcript. So you don't necessarily need to repeat information. Exactly. Anything, and this is really important, what you just said there, because I'm always having discussions with families about this, and they sort of have trouble believing it. I'll say, get rid of all this stuff about the AP classes and the honors classes taken or the international baccalaureate. You know, get rid of the test scores. All that is going to be coming to the college from other sources. So don't bore them first thing by giving them information they already have or they'll stop reading. I mean, I like I have to say I used to do that in college admissions. I'd be sitting there with a stack of 40, 50, 60 applications I had to get through. And if you were repeating information I already knew, I was going to stop reading. And that's just the way it went. That's just the way it worked. Exactly. And and that's why I say. Only do this if you feel you're not repeating information that's already within the Common App. So if you're already accomplishing all you need to accomplish within the activities list that the Common Application provides you or whatever platform that you're using, then, hey, you're done. If you're not (laughs) and you've got so much more that you need to tell a college or university, then by all means, um, do something else in order to get that information across. But the moment you start repeating you're going to turn off an admissions officer who may be trying to read your application within 20 minutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the moment they, you know, come across information that's just being repeated in other parts of the application, they're going to go into the application thinking, hey, just repeating information I already read elsewhere. There's no need to delve into this. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the reason you submitted that was because there was a piece of information that was quite important um, that you wanted to get across and that might be missed as a consequence. Mm-hmm. 
I will say that I think situations in which, so now that we've, we've told people very clearly, and Ian and Julia did too, the resumes are often not a good idea because you don't want to repeat. So I just thought it'd be good to give another example like uh, of when they can be useful. A student who's truly an accomplished musician, for example, and maybe applying directly into a music conser- conservatory, or a student who's got remarkable science research accomplishments. And I don't just mean the local science fair, Mm -hmm. but really has some pretty remarkable published works. Those students, I think a resume might be useful if the school lets you submit it. Uh, Would you agree with that? I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And there are going to be some places, some conservatories that might even be asking for an artistic resume, where they're going to want to know, hey, who taught you? Who was, you know, what studio did you belong to? Um, you know, where did you perform? What was your repertoire? They're going to want to know uh, some things that a regular activities list just is not going to cover. Uh, and, and they wouldn't be able to glean that information from a regular activities list. So mm-hmm. it's going to be important to, to be able to convey that information about your summer programs, maybe productions, maybe musical groups, and who taught you and so forth. All of those things are are quite important, and, you know, a place like a conservatory is going to want to know that information. If you're applying to, uh, let's say, uh, Institute of Technology or, you know, a comprehensive university, and you've got some really great research experience, sometimes some schools would appreciate seeing an abstract of the paper that you've written. They don't necessarily perhaps need to <laughs> see the 40-page paper. Some would appreciate that and, and, and might actually like that, uh, you know, depending upon the school. But others would be fine with an abstract, just to give an admissions officer an idea of, okay, what were you able to do? What were you able to study? This is the information that I need to quickly convey to the admissions committee exactly what your accomplishments were. And some might give you an opportunity to perhaps link that information onto their application, uh, where you know you can uh, submit those abstracts or those research papers, um, you know. So it's 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 a good idea to be prepped for that, especially if you do have some of those distinctions that aren't going to be covered within a regular activities list. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. So. Um, Let's, so this is school's out, so this means homework, right? So I just uh-huh. wanted to talk, um, yeah, yeah. even though we can't follow up on it, you should be doing your homework if you're listening to the show. So um, last week's homework from Ian was to complete the activity sheet template. And um, like obviously you can go back to the archives and listen to last week's show. Um, but the, uh, the website, if you want to find it, is tinyurl.com forward slash gvm. 8JUHQ. That's tinyurl forward slash GV8JUHK. Um, so hopefully our listeners did so. So, Zaragoza, how would you add to Ian's homework? I would say start on that. For those students who feel, hey, this isn't cutting it for me, I'm not able to fit all my information on here. Um, and for those students who want to take a stab at a resume, because sometimes these resumes can come in handy, not necessarily just for your application, but perhaps, you know, for, uh, you know, some summer programs that you might be participating in, they come in, could come in handy for your recommenders and so forth. I'd like a student to start delving into a resume and an academic resume, and I would divide it into three sections, your extracurricular activities, your volunteer experiences, uh, uh, volunteer experiences or work experiences, and your honors and awards. 
Okay, so just those three sections. No need to talk about your APs. No need to talk about the classes that you're taking and so forth or the school that you're attending. Just delve into those three things. And you're going to want to let a university know or whoever it is that you're providing this resume to the name of the club, your role, the time frame. Hey, when did you participate in this? Was it 9th, 10th, 11th, or 12th grade? And a description. A description not of the activity, but your contributions to that activity. And that should be presented in kind of like action words. So I produced X show or I wrote for the newspaper and so forth. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be, this doesn't have to be three pages long. We're talking mostly probably one page. Um, for students, it could be two pages. But try to be concise here. Mm-hmm. All right, and I'm going to follow up on that with my homework, the idea of concise. So for those of you who don't need a resume, or even if you think you might, what I want you to do first is go to the activity sheet that I just gave you the URL of, and go through your wording and figure out, try and figure out how to bring down each entry to 150 words using the most descriptive words possible. You know, use those action words just like Zaragoza said. And remember that you don't need full sentences. So try to be concise. Really try hard to fit everything in the activity sheet before you go to the resume. All right. So I want to turn to Lori and not uh, neglect, not neglect her, Lori. Thanks for your patience. Um, So just related to this, how might the activity list or resume of an admissions application um, factor into financial aid? Is there a way that it might you know, help a student who's applying for scholarships? I think it can. I think once a student has their activity list together and in front of them, when they go online to do a national or what we call an outside scholarship search, uh, we have had some episodes in the past about that. I know Shannon was on the radio show recently talking about quirky scholarships. There are lots of different search engines out there that you can use to look for scholarships, but they all want to know what were you involved in. Some of them, um, the search engines are better than others, and they'll have check boxes. So if you were in 4-H or if you were a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout um, or played in a band um, or played a musical instrument, there'll be check boxes to check them off. Other ones, you might have to enter the information yourself. So once you've done your activity resume, it can be used to search for these outside scholarships that might be related to that activity. It also can be used uh, when you're applying for a work-study job on campus. You know, you'll have your resume pretty much together so that if you're applying for a job, it's, it's there. Um, so I think it would be helpful, and I think, you know, the college is going to see your activity resume and know you're a more well-rounded student, and it might lead to a merit scholarship from the college as well if they're trying to get more students who are interested in debate or student government or the newspaper or the band. They're going to look at your activity resume and say, hey, if we accept this kid, maybe if we give him a scholarship to come, we're going to build up our newspaper and our student government. And, and the students aren't just going to sit in their dorm rooms and do homework. They're going to actually get out on campus and get involved. So those are the type of students they want and may reward them with a scholarship for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just in the same way that it impacts admissions, it can definitely impact mm-hmm. scholarships. Yeah. So let's, um, let's also talk a couple, not last week, but the week before, uh, Beth Feinberg Keaton, who was a, a, one of your one of the finance consultants on our team, um, gave some homework, and I was hoping that you could kind of talk about the homework she gave and uh, do do a follow up of your own homework. Sure, she had recommended for homework to 
um, keep a list of the schools you're applying to and not only have the data and details of what's required for college admission for those schools, but also what's required for financial aid. So if you plan on applying for financial aid, you know, when is the FAFSA due? Do they require the CSS profile? I did this with my own kids. You have to stay organized or else you're going to miss deadline dates. You're going to miss some of the requirements. In addition to the financial aid applications, I would also do some research and see what do the schools offer for merit-based aid, if anything. The schools will list uh, the requirements for their merit-based aid scholarships. And you have to do the research on your own, or again, you could miss out on that opportunity. Some of the requirements might be an earlier deadline date, like you have to apply early action to be uh, included in their scholarship pool, or you might have to write an extra essay, you might have to come in for an interview, or in the case of performing arts, you might have to come in and audition or submit a tape by a certain date in order to be qualifying for their merit scholarships around performing arts. So adding that to the Excel spreadsheet or whatever kind of format you're using to keep track of what's required for each school that's on your list, what are the deadline dates, and you can check it off as you get it done um, and update it as things change. Mm -hmm. All right, everyone, did you hear that? There's some work there, but it's valuable work, and you can find all this information on the school's websites. So it's pretty easy to find. Um, all right, so we we have to go. We've gone over a little bit because I just think this conversation was so helpful. So thanks so much, Zaragoza and Lori. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, Kathy Ruby will be telling me about scholarship and loan scams. So stick around. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You 
are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Kathy Ruby will be discussing how to avoid scholarship and loan scams when financing a college education. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Good to be here. Um, all right. So paying for college and repaying college loans is complicated enough without worrying about companies that are out there trying to make a buck off you while you're trying to figure things out. Um, so... Let's talk about scholarship and loan scams. I think it's one of the most one of the more disgusting things people do is trying to profit <laughs> yes. off families who are trying to, you know, get the money together to send their kids to college. Um, but okay, let's be specific. What what exactly do you mean by scholarship scams? Okay, well, so if we talk about scholarship scams first, there's there's about well, we we identify three different kinds of scams that you might want to be concerned about and with, with uh, not, not all highly serious, but just things to be aware of. Um, first, there are companies out there that are going to charge you money to help you find scholarships. Um, they're going to say they can help you find scholarships, um, that they're, um, and then second, there are companies out there that, or there are companies that will promote scholarships that aren't really scholarships. Um, really just an attempt to get your information so they can market to you. And then finally, there are also those, those honor societies out there that are charging your student money to be listed in their, their very prestigious publications. Oh, God. I'll just tell you with the last ones, I, I am constantly breaking students' and parents' hearts by yeah. telling them that who's who is pointless and they shouldn't pay the money and they're so sad to hear it. They um, sound very special, don't they? But they're yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. But I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So let's talk first about companies that charge you money and claim they'll help you find scholarships to pay for school. Yes. So so these kinds of companies, they come in different forms. Some of them will just say, you know, we're going to help you find those private scholarships, although there are fewer of those now that, that there are free scholarship search tools out there. Um, they might tell you they'll help you find scholarships at various colleges, um, they may charge you money to complete financial aid forms for you. Um, I talked to a mom not too long ago <clears throat> whose daughter was a senior in college, and this mom had been paying $20 a month for the whole time her daughter was at college. And this company had, had in the beginning said, we're going to find scholarships, we're going to make this cheaper for you, oh, and we'll fill out the financial aid forms for you. And now that it was the student senior year, the mom was pretty much saying, you know what, the forms weren't that bad, and they didn't really find us any money. And $20 mm-hmm. a month doesn't sound like much, but, you know, over four years, that's a 1000 bucks essentially. Right. That's books. That's airfare, you know, back and forth from home. That's, that adds yep. up. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, so you don't need a company to help you do those things. There's a, as Lori just mentioned, um, and as I've already mentioned, and we often talk about, there are free scholarship search tools. Um, out on the internet, scholarships.com, fastweb.com. Those are all free, and they've got the same data in them that these companies are using to try to find scholarships for you. So there's no reason to pay anybody to look for scholarships for you. You can do web searches. I mean, back in the day, we had to go to the library and get books, right? But today, it's on the internet, so you can find it that way for free. 
um, <clears throat> we do suggest when you're doing one of those searches that you set up a separate email address because it'll keep things simpler as you're getting various emails from the search tools. Um, you can research college websites on your own to learn about their scholarships. And if you're having problems filling out your financial aid form, you can call the government, you can call the college financial aid office. They're happy to help you, even if you haven't been accepted yet. So there's no reason you need to pay anyone to help you fill out forms or to search for scholarships. Mm-hmm. And what about scholarships that are scams? So these are, these are less harmful. I mean, these aren't really scams, but they're really just promotional scholarships. So essentially, companies have learned that kids will sign up for anything if they think there's a scholarship attached. So what you want to be careful of is when you're getting notices about scholarships to apply for, and you'll get lots of those once you're in all these scholarship searches and you're, everybody knows you're a senior in high school, um, don't apply for the scholarships that don't have real criteria attached. You know, if it says, oh, give us your email address and we'll enter you to win a scholarship, that's not really a scholarship. They're really just trying to get your, your email address so that they can market to you. And it's very, very unlikely that there's actually going to be a scholarship attached. So make sure you're applying for scholarships that are, are, have actual criteria, like you have to write an essay or you have to have done something in order to receive it. Right. Otherwise, my sense of those scholarships, too, is, you know, sometimes it's pay $25 and right. um, we'll enter you in. And, you know, a thousand people are putting in $25, but the scholarship is only for $1,000. So it's legal, but they're really walking away with a massive profit. Yes. And you're very unlikely to actually win anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, and really right. no- and you're out $25. Right. Exactly. So anytime they charge you, it's probably not worth it. Um, All right. And so we talked about honor societies. I mentioned who's who. um, And yeah, and I certainly didn't look at them in college admissions when people put them, um, put them down under honors. Um, And by the way, this is different from National Honor Society that you get through your school, things that are through your school or worth something. Um, But any others that they should look out for? You know, I, th- I was trying to think of all the names. There's who's who's, there's the national, you know, sometimes it'll be customized to something that your student is actually involved in. Right. So it, can be, it can be really misleading because you think, oh, wow, this association of, you know, music professors, I'm, I'm using that as an example. I don't know if they actually do it, but you know what I mean. They right. Make it like sound high school. Like, right. Yeah, I've, I've it, seen high school scholars even, for example. Right. Yeah. Right. So it sounds like, oh, somebody's recognizing that my student is good at X. And your student probably is good at X. <laughs> That's how they ended up on a list somewhere um, that they got marketed to. So, but you shouldn't have to pay any money to appear in a book that will not really make a difference at all. Nobody mm-hmm. looks at them. And you, you, got, you, you, the admission educators at College Coach, are the best at, at verifying that. Nobody looks at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we never, ever, ever did. And I always felt sad for the families that had paid their money. So, yeah, yeah. Save it for college. Uh, yeah. All right. So now let's talk about loan scams. I assume that most loan programs themselves aren't scams. I mean, loans are, you know, loan, a lot of people take out loans. I think most people mm-hmm. do. Um, and there are banking rules and regulations that govern them. So what do you mean exactly by loan scams? So um, we're really talking about companies who advertise that they're going to help you manage repayment of your loans. 
Um, and I don't know about you, but I've, you know, they, they say they'll consolidate your loans. They'll say they'll get your loans forgiven. They'll reduce your monthly payments. They make all kinds of promises. Um, I've heard them advertised on the radio. I see them in my Facebook feed. You know, they, they know what college I went to and they, they say, Carlton Malone's, get your loans forgiven and mark it that way. Um, and they make it sound like they can fix whatever your loan repayment problem is. Um, and they build themselves as debt relief companies. And the way they operate is they charge you money to get you enrolled in various loan forgiveness programs or to consolidate your loans, to reduce your monthly payments. Um, but these are all programs that you can find out about and enroll in for free because they're available to every, every person who's borrowed a federal student loan. Um, so the good news is there, there have been, you know, people are on this. There are several states now who are pursuing these companies um, and trying to stop what they're doing. The Department of Education has issued some, some warnings about them. If you look at student studentaid.gov. Um, there's some good information there about how to avoid these kinds of scams. Um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the FPB, um, is a good organization. They've got lots of great information about these scams. But the bottom line is you shouldn't have to pay anybody to manage your student loans for you um, because all of the programs they're promising you are available to you whether or not you pay somebody. <clears throat> okay, so so for loans, I just want to repeat this information because I think it's really important because people do want to consolidate. They do need a little bit of relief, so they should go to the person who owns their loan, essentially. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Okay, so when we, when we talk about federal loans, <clears throat> you would go to your federal loan servicer to take advantage of a federal loan consolidation or income-driven repayment plans, or getting a temporary, you know, deferment or forbearance on your loan. So federal loans are flexible that way, and you should contact your servicer. Um, when it comes to private loans, certainly reach out to your servicer. Um, sometimes they can provide you with relief. Um, other times they can't, depending on the terms of the loan. Um, and then if you're actually interested in refinancing private loans, um, there are private loan refinancers out there who are perfectly reputable, but they don't charge you money to refinance your loan. They simply say, let's check your credit. Let's see if we can get you a better rate and better terms. Um, and then here's this new loan for you to refinance your private loan. Um, and just a word of caution, you want to be careful about refinancing private and federal loans together because your federal loans lose their federal characteristics when you consolidate them with private loans. But at any rate, there are good companies out there that are refinancing private loans. But again, these debt relief companies are charging you money to get you into one of those, get you into a program, which is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, any last things? We have one minute left. One minute. Well, let's see. Um, I think that I, we, we've already talked this a little, about this a little bit, but when it comes to uh, debt relief and student loans, your best bet is really to reach out to the servicer um, and take advantage of, of what's available. A great website that describes the federal repayment programs very well is, uh, is actually the U.S. Department of Education's website, studentaid.gov. And it's got easy drop-down boxes that 
describe in very easy language the different repayment programs that are available. There's a great repayment estimator that you can enter your federal loan and get an idea of the range of repayment options that are available to you. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds great. And listen, thank you, Kathy, and thanks to all my guests today. Okay. Um, All right. Now I want to tell you about our show next week. We'll be featuring another Schools Out segment, and then we'll be answering listener questions. So be sure to tune in. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find our shows featuring Schools Out segments, which begin on June 30th. And last, if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time and is absolutely free. And last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Check us out, and thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.